Electricast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to episode 136 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. This podcast is a production of The Leadership Failings. You can find out more about me and what I do at leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Michael Alaruzzo. Now, Michael is a full-time visiting instructor of on-site and online undergraduate, graduate, and executive education courses in the Department of Management of the Hobb School of Business at St. Joseph's University. His course specialties include business management, personal and organizational leadership, teams and teamwork, interpersonal communication, and conflict resolution. He is a recipient of the Merit Award for Teaching Excellence at SJU. Michael earned his management degrees from the College of Business and Economics at West Virginia University and the School of Hotel Administration at Cornell University. His professional career and research focus is on teaching and training and has included corporate training, operations management and analytics in the hospitality industry, faculty and staff training and development in higher education and consulting for global clients in a variety of industries. His opinion has been published in international trade journals, and he has appeared as an expert at international conferences. Now, Michael and I, as you can tell, we have a great conversation around leadership and uh, particularly the, the hospitality industry, but not just restricted to that. Uh, but we talk about teams, we talk about teamwork, we talk about all those things that we mention here in the bio. So I'm not going to belabor the point much more. You think you're going to have an outstanding conversation uh, here with Michael. You're going to pull a lot of great info out of it. So I'm going to get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Michael Alarusa. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Earl, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to have this, uh, this conversation. As we mentioned, uh, kind of the pre-show workup, I've had a chance to watch a few of your videos, and uh, I think you're going to have a lot of great information to share uh, with our listeners today. Uh, but I got to start you off with the same place I start everybody. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? That means to me, I've thought about this a lot, and it, it means looking out for others first. It means putting the, the people that you are there to lead. Leadership is about others first. And uh, without those others, there are no leaders. And it's about putting those people and their needs first. It's about putting the organization and its needs first. And it doesn't mean that our needs uh, are not thought of. We all need to take care of ourselves. Uh, and, but it, it, the idea of burden of command uh, is that you make a conscious effort to put the needs of others first and you take on that responsibility. And it's funny that you ask that because the first question I ask my students in a leadership course or when we talk about leadership in our management courses is, does leadership feel to you like it is uh, a burden, a responsibility that maybe is more than you want or a trouble or an aggravation or an inconvenience because it does feel that way to, to a lot of people? Or does it feel like a, a fire, a driving force, uh, you know, a, a, a pull from within? 
and so it's interesting, and I challenge students to think about it not as an either or, but as a, a percentage of a whole. So if you think of a pie chart, what percentage of leadership to you is, is that internal driving force that, that, that's a fire uh, for you versus what, a, what percentage is, um, is a bit of an inconvenience, is a bit of a burden, is a bit of a responsibility that, that at times is frustrating, overwhelming, or is something you don't want. So you get answers all across the board. Uh, and it's okay that not everybody wants to be a leader. Uh, it's okay that not everybody wants to be a manager or in charge. There's nothing wrong with people do, doing their stuff and then moving, you know, and, and coming home, going home and coming back in the next day or, or doing their work and, and contributing their efforts, uh, but letting somebody else take that, that mantle of command or that, that burden of command. So I, I do. I think that, that the idea of, of leadership and command, uh, and, and the idea of the, the burden of command is that you take that responsibility. Um, and, and you, you, you hap, you usually happily take it. It doesn't mean every day is easy. It doesn't mean it's easy at all. But that you 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 take that on willingly to some extent, uh, and when I think of that burden of command, you know, Earl, I, I talk to my students and I tell them the on the first day we're less than a week out from classes. You know, on, on the twenty third, I'm going to be back in the classroom, and one of the things I tell all students on the first day is, I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. I've been preparing for months for our class. I've been tweaking and analyzing and planning and and doing work and doing all the stuff I have to do. And I'll tell you this, I'm going to be ready for every class. So that's my, and, and, and I, I say that to them because I want them to know that I take my responsibility very seriously and I enjoy it. And that is, that is a long answer to the short, an, short question of a burden of command. No, it's a, it's a great answer. I love everything you said there. And I, I love the piece that you said about, uh, it is okay to not want to take on that burden. It's okay to not want to take on that mantle. And, and I think, I think that's where a lot of leadership, let me put it this way. I think that's where a lot of people in leadership roles today really mess up is they take that leadership role because it's more money. It gets you the corner office. It gets you a fancy title, but that's not a good reason to do that. Right. Correct. And, um, I've had a lot of people ask me, this is a question you hear bantied about a lot. It is, can anyone be a leader? And a lot of people say yes. A lot of people say no. I am in the no camp. I don't believe anyone can be a leader. I don't believe that everyone can be a leader. And the reason why is I believe leadership takes on two primary roles. Or, or to be a leader, there are sort of two primary, uh, I hate to use the word skills, uh, two primary elements, let me say. One is competence. You have to have a certain competence, knowledge, skill, cognitive ability uh, to, to be a leader. There, there's a role that you have to execute in your job. We'll keep this to a professional realm. It could also be uh, used in the personal realm of leading our life or leading others, leading a home. But in the prof professional realm, there's a certain competence that, that one expects of our leaders. And not everybody has that. Not everybody has it. Maybe they lack education. Not that you have to be educated to be a leader, uh, but maybe you, you lack a certain amount of knowledge, skill, ability, education, resources, something that, that maybe inhibits that. But on the second element is, is commitment, that there's a commitment that must be there to 
enhance our competence. I'm always trying to grow. There's a commitment of time, money, and energy toward getting better, being a leader, putting the time to be, a, you know, to serve those uh, who are around us. And there are a lot of people who don't want to take that commitment for, you know, or make that commitment for one reason or another, and that's okay. But you have to, you have to be prepared to, to build your competence and you have to be prepared for the gaps in your competence. You know, so many times great salespeople get promoted to sales management roles and they flame out because they're not set up for success because they lack a certain leadership competence. They're great at sales, but they may not be great at leading salespeople and they're not set up for success by their organization. So there has to be a competence there and it has to be developed and there has to be a commitment. There has to be a willingness to put forth the work, the time, the energy, and sometimes the money to develop that competence and to serve the people that need served. Um, a, a lot of people, they say, oh, you know, I spent so much time doing A, B, and C for everybody else. I didn't do my job. That is your job. That, you know, it may not be in your job description. It may not be in your key performance edu- indicators, but that is your job. If you want to, if you're going to be seen as a leader, that, that's your primary job. So I think that, that, yeah, you're right. It's not a good enough reason. Uh, the, the trappings of leadership are not a good enough reason, in my opinion, to take the job. You've got to be willing to take on the commitment that comes with the job and build the competence necessary to be successful in that job. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like a lot of what you said there. There was some good stuff. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times kind of, of brushed up against it and, and the folks heard in the pre-roll bio. Uh, but you are, you know, not just somebody who is making this stuff up out of thin air. You, you teach this stuff, right? Every day I teach, um, I teach undergraduate and master's students, uh, on site and online every single day. Uh, we talk about, uh, we, we talk about what it means. We, we talk about foundations of leadership. We talk about um, what it means to lead yourself. Uh, we talk about what it means to lead others, whether that's um, people o- over whom you have a formal authority, the people who report to you, or the people you have no authority over, whether it's peers or influencing your boss. You know, the term we use is managing up. Uh, we talk about communication. Uh, we talk about leading teams. We talk about conflict resolution which is everywhere. Conflict is everywhere. Um, we talk about, and then we talk about leading an organization. We talk about things like mission and culture and vision and values, and the things that are at the core of what an organization stands for. And then we talk about some of the elements of leading an organization, some of the, the more strategic tactical el- and tactical elements like change leadership, um, crisis leadership, stuff like that. Yeah. No, I, and I like that. And I, I like what you're doing. And, and, Correct me if I'm wrong here, because I want to want to kind of walk people through your journey here a little bit. Because if I was able to piece your story together, you took like the absolute traditional route to become a professor, right? You started out bartending. That is the most traditional route, right? I mean, <laughs> listening to people and having your opinion and knowing when to keep your mouth shut. I still haven't figured that one out, Earl. Uh, but. The, um, yeah, I started bartending at, you know, I went to West Virginia University and, um, you know, normal college kid, uh, kind of enjoyed the bar scene even before I was 21. Uh, but I, I, I kind of fell in love with the industry. I just found it fascinating. So I started bartending, uh, worked my way up, worked every job in a restaurant, uh, got promoted to manager, got promoted to general manager. 
um, and and loved it, but it was very trying for me. And I, I found that 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 leadership dynamic was uh, it was hard. And um, what ended up ha- what I what I kind of did is I kind of stepped back and I thought, when uh, you know what what do I really want? And it's I wanted a little bit more of a strategic viewpoint. So then I went on to graduate school. I was lucky enough to get into the hotel school at Cornell University, which mm. was uh, life changing. Uh, and made so many friends and met so many, uh, so many influential professors, uh, professors who wrote the textbooks that other programs used. Uh, and they helped me, um, also see, you know, what, what great classroom facilitation and leadership looked like. And then when I graduated, I actually wanted to go back into the restaurant industry, which I did for a year, uh, and I wanted to do restaurant development, but all it just wasn't for me. And unfortunately, you know, I kind of found myself after a year saying, you know, when was I happy? I mean, that, that, and it's funny because when we think about leadership, we think about leading ourselves. Happiness is is part of the equation, and and happiness is such a big topic. Or you know, we could spend the rest of our lives talking about that. But I just sat down and I said, when was I happy? And I started thinking about when I was a soccer coach when I was 16, when I was a corporate trainer in the restaurant industry and teaching people how to do stuff, when I was a graduate assistant helping students with their resumes in the career services office. I mean, all these, all these dynamics of me teaching and helping the, and facilitating the growth of someone else, which at the end of the day is central to leadership is, you know, that is what, what I, when, when I was happy. And I, I got very lucky. I got offered the opportunity to teach uh, at Mercyhurst College, now university. And I, I did that for four years. And then I, in that time, I met my wife. We moved to Philadelphia, taught at Drexel. Now I've been at St. Joe's. I start my 12th year uh, in a week. And, and I love management. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's great is that, that man, organization management and life management, they go hand in hand. And, Leadership being one of the disciplines under management, um, which I teach a lot of on its own. Yeah, that, that's my background. And it's, um, and I've, I've been able to, what's great when you teach is you, the more you teach, the more you learn. And it's, you know, everything I learn, I give back to my students. I mean, my students almost get frustrated with me, Earl, because I give them so many materials and I say to them at the beginning of the course, look, we're not going to get through all these. But I just found so much good stuff that I want to share with you that we're going to get through everything we can. But I want you to realize that the end of leadership is not the end of this eight or 16 week course. It's, it continues forever. So keep this stuff forever. And the students love that. Yeah. Well, no. And then that is, I think that's, that's a key thing. I mean, again, you said a lot of great stuff there. First, the happiness piece. You know, again, we kind of talked about that a little bit already, but you know, what I love the way you asked that question, when was I the happiest? And, and that's a, another question that uh, a lot of people really need to ask themselves because we, we talk about employee, uh, disengagement. We talk about employee burnout. We talk about all of these things. And that's like a key factor. People are working jobs that they hate. Uh, people are in positions that they hate and they know that they hate them. And that's just a recipe for disengagement and burnout. Find the thing that you love. Find the thing that drives you. Find the thing that, that makes you get up in the morning and say, man, I get to go to work. Not, man, I've got to go to work, right? Absolutely. And 
know, there are people out there that, um, that they say, well, I love to cook. That doesn't mean they should be cooking in a restaurant. That doesn't mean they should be cooking all the time, but you find the things that, that I to get all existential, but it's true that, that sort of feed your soul. You know, what are the things that, that feed your soul? Where, where do you, where do you find that you get excited? And, and one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a new course in the second half of the fall term leading for career success. And it's about career management and career success. And we, we look at not only career trends, but we look at, uh, internally, where have the students come from? This is a graduate course. So the students are all working professionals. And so like, where, where's your, edu- you know, they have, to, they have to reflect on their education and their their working career so far. And where do you want that to go? So that's the first half of the course. And the second half is them understanding, helping and leading and facilitating career success for others. And and so what you know, the manager's job and the organization's job. And and one of the tools that I like to use. Uh, that I have used in, in other courses that I'm using for this is called Career Anchors. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty complex but excellent assessment tool by a, a guy named Edgar Schein, uh, pioneer in management. And, and the Career Anchors give you eight dimensions on which you measure what you want out of a job. So it's not, it's not as if, you know, you should go into finance. You should go into sales. I like doing. It's what do you want out of a job? And I took this years ago, and my number one career anchor, Earl, was autonomy. Mm. That that's that's what it was. I love autonomy in a job. And you know what? Being a college professor gives me a ton of autonomy, yeah. other than being in the classroom at a specific day at a specific time, and a few other. Um, expectations. I have virtually a hundred percent control of my life. And that is really important to me. And other people, for, I'll give you, for example, my wife, her number one career anchor, cause I'll come upon these things. And she's like, well, I want to do that. And I'm like, yeah, here, honey, take a look at this. Uh, hers was service to a cause. Her mm-hmm. serving some cause greater than herself is the most important thing for her in her career. And when that, when that came out as the highest one, she went, yeah. And I mean, she has, she has done, I mean, my wife is a pharmacist by trade and is a clinical pharmacist. But Earl, you're talking about a woman who worked with HIV patients when it was still a death sentence, yeah. uh, in the nineties. I mean, she got to, she got to interact with people and help try and save their life through their medication and some counseling. She's worked with refugees settling into the United States legally and, and helping them get on their feet. She's worked with, with people from disadvantaged neighborhoods in, in and around Philadelphia and getting some of their critical biological numbers back in order. Um, and, and listening to their stories and helping them. She has, um, you know, she could work for any pharmaceutical company, but she refuses to work for just any old one that's putting out another medication. She wants to work for one that is doing cutting edge work that has value. And she works for a company that has created a new gene therapy to help cure this really rare form of genetic blindness. And mm. so, I mean, these are, and, and now, and unfortunately her father passed away uh, from a, an iron disorder in her, in his blood called hemochromatosis. 
And she's worked with a variety of iron disorder organizations. She just interviewed a couple of weeks ago. She's going to be on the board for Hemochromatosis International. And, mm. and, and so, you know, you, and you talk about a woman who has found like all of, I mean, and so the idea of service to a cause doesn't mean you have to work for a nonprofit. You can be affiliated with nonprofits. You can be affiliated with organizations or you can choose an organization that does more than, than just work in a field. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways that you can do that. But that, that career anchors, if your listeners have an opportunity to go on, you can, you can go online and just look up the words career anchors online and it'll pop up. Edgar Schein is the author and, um, it's about $40. You can go on and you get this great report and, I highly recommend it. If, if anybody who's having trouble figuring out where they want to take their career, I think it's a good assessment to consider. No, I'll agree 100%. I mean, one of the shields I talk about here uh, as part of the, the phalanx that we talk about is is about that knowing yourself, uh, knowing yourself and seeking self-improvement. Uh, it's one of the principles that you know they taught us in Marine Corps leadership. And, and what I love about it is that's exactly what it sounds like this tool does is help you get to know yourself because again, that's kind of the foundation of, of planning that future because a lot of people go about that blind, right? Absolutely. And you know, it's funny you, you mentioned about knowing yourself and one of, one of the key buzzwords that we often hear is the term authenticity. You know, you're behaving in an authentic fashion. And I say to students, you know, you want to get down to leadership. If there's one thing I can offer you, it's the two crit. I have thought about this so much, Earl. I think there are two critical questions that every leader must ask of themselves at all times. Question number one is, am I authentic? Am I myself? Do I have an understanding of who I am? And am I allowed to be myself? Because mm. not every organization, not every role allows us to be ourselves. Yep. And if, if, and so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is it working? Am, is it working? Is myself working in my situation? Is it working for me? Is it working for my organization? Is it working for my direct reports? Is it working for the people I'm supposed to serve? If the answer is yes, I get to be who I am. And yes, it is working. Then you keep doing what you're doing. But, if either of those two things, the answer is no, something needs to change. Is it what do I need to learn about myself or what do I need to change about myself in order to have things work? And let's be clear, we all have to make modifications of who we are in our professional lives uh, in order to fit into an organization's culture. That's normal. But the question is, do you still get to feel like yourself? Um, or we all might, you know, we get married do we change who we are a little bit? Uh, you know, uh, let's hope we get to remain who we are. But I mean, make no mistake, I'm a different person than, than I was when my wife married me in a good way. I'm better. I'm better. Yeah. She's made me better. And I've seen some of the things that, that I could be better at. Um, so we all make these kind of changes, but I still feel like me. And so every leader needs to decide, hey, do I feel like me? Do I know myself? Do I feel like I, I, um, I, I get to, to be myself. And the, the other thing is, is it working? If it's not working, the question is why? Is it a clash with the organization's culture? Is it that your style is rubbing off uh, on people? Is it an issue with the people that you're dealing with? Do they need to be replaced? 
sometimes managers and leaders come in and the, the, the people that they are inherited to lead, they don't, they don't want to have anything to do with them. And they, they are the problem. And sometimes those people need to be replaced as well. Is it, is it just not a good fit and you need to, to move on? Uh, you know, I, I, I taught for four years. I said at Mercyhurst College, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity I had. But in all honesty, it wasn't the right fit for me. It just wasn't. And I knew it. I knew it in the first year. And as luck would have it, in that second year, I met my wife. And, um, you know, as we planned our life, I was okay with moving on. I was okay with looking for other opportunities. So when she finished her residency, we, you know, we looked to leave Erie, Pennsylvania. We, we were fine to settle in Philadelphia. And I, I, I took a chance that I'd find another job. So, yeah, I, I knew that it, you know, I, that there was, a, there was a, there was a clash there of me being myself and it working. And I made the choice to move on. So, yeah, the, the idea of knowing yourself is core, but then there's also an external idea of it's got to be working. It can't just work for the leader. It's got to work for, for the key stakeholders as well. Yeah. Well, no, and I think, uh, I think what you're talking about here is, is kind of at the root of, you know, what, what folks are starting to call now this, uh, the great resignation. Right. We're, we're seeing all of these people as, as more businesses are open up return to work, more people are choosing not to. Right. And, and some people want to say, Oh, well, we gave out a bunch of money. We're paying people not to work. Why would they want to go back to work? I mean, sure. There's maybe an argument there for that. Fine. A little, but I think it's very short sighted because what, what people are saying really is, I don't want to come back to work for you. And I think a lot of organizations are missing that piece of it to figure out why, why, why do people not want to come back to work for me? And what can I do to be a place that people want to work for? Kind of like what you're saying there, right? That's right. And, uh, and one of the, one of the things we're hearing is a lot of organizations want to bring people back into the office and people are refusing because they're, they're, they say they feel like they've proven that they get their work done, uh, from home. It saves them a, a possibly a very lengthy commute, uh, gives them more time with their family, which, you know, is, is wonderful. And, uh, and so they're, they're taking what, what we're seeing that this great resignation is people taking control of their careers, mm. which is a good thing. Uh, it really is people. I, I will tell you this or one of the things I tell all my students is this. You must be the greatest advocate for your career. You cannot just go in, do your job and, Expect your boss to come to you and say, you're doing so great. Here's a promotion. You need to knock on some doors and say, Hey, you know, there's some things I want. I mean, I have, I have bothered the heck out of my department chairs or I'm on my third department chair in 11 years, going on 12 years here, uh, just because they're, you know, they're on cycled terms. And, um, but I've bothered all three of them for opportunities and I, I, and, and they know it. I, and, and early on, you know, when I had the first one who hired me, I, I made no bones about it. I was going to ask for opportunities and some I'll get and some I won't. And I'm okay with that. And when, when my second one took over, when she retired, um, I, I was very honest with him and said, look, I, I'm, I'm a go getter. I'm ambitious. Here's what, here's what I want. And so like he can't give me a pay raise, but he can give me new courses. He can give me a good schedule. So, so he knew that I was going to ask for opportunities. And now my third one's here and I've, and, and they know me, so it's not a problem, but I've, I'm just very, very upfront and saying, these are the opportunities I want. And so I've always kind of taken control of my career. 
I don't know where that comes from, Earl. I think that's something innate. I've always kind of been a headstrong person, even as a kid. But I've never shied away from asking for opportunities. And I've always challenged my students to do the same. If there's an opportunity that, that you want, go get it. Go ask for it. Um, and I think we're seeing that with people. People are saying, look, I want to work from home. Uh, I don't want to come into the office. Or I'll come into the office. They want the freedom to decide if they want to come into the office. Yeah. And the more organizations sort of tighten their grip around their, you know, the managers and, and executives tighten their grip around the employees, people are going to leave. They're, people are going to, you know, slip through their fingers. And, and the organizations that are going to be the most flexible are the ones that are going to attract, develop, and retain the talent. Make no mistake, there are people, Earl, who live in one-bedroom apartments or studio apartments who cannot wait to get the hell out of them yep. so they can get back into an office. There are people who have a short commute and love it, and it gets them away from their bothersome dog or cat or spouse or whatever, or parents if they're young, maybe they're still living at home, and it gets them out of the house, and they feel like a professional, and it it's a positive part of their day. And those people should be allowed to do that too. Yep. Um, but I think organizations, like you said, people, are, organizations are, are, they have been and are in for a greater wake-up call regarding the war on talent. And with a shrinking workforce, um, they're having to make some tough decisions. And we're going to see those tough decisions continue. And I think it's great that people are taking control of their, uh, their careers. That's self-leadership. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I also agree, you know, that there should be that flexibility. And, you know, I, I think one of the other interesting things for me from kind of the business perspective is, is we were inundated with a lot of studies during the, the official like lockdown. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember reading several articles where organizations were talking about, Oh, this is great. We're saving this much money in electricity. We're saving this much money in office supplies. It's cut our bottom line. And it's like they've kind of forgotten those savings and just, hey, we're getting back to normal, so we want, we, we are taking a headstrong approach. And I agree with you 100%. The organizations that are, are you know, I'll use corporate words here, you know, agile, nimble, able to, yep. to peek around corners. You know, I was uh, interviewed a few folks who were like HR focused, uh, you know, not long ago. And, uh, you know, they were working with companies like Google and, and uh, uh, Yahoo and those folks, right? And they were talking about the programs that those organizations are putting in place to where now that mobile work has become more normal mm -hmm. and the talent base has, has gotten used to that, you know, they're recruiting from places that they haven't thought of before. You know, they're, yep. they're getting into the those underserved communities because they're realizing, hey, there's a lot of talent there. They just can't afford to move to Los Angeles. But now that all we got to do is give them an internet connection and they can still work for us. We That's can tap right. that talent pool. That's right. I'll tell you, Earl, I agree with you 100%. And, and I, um, I said early on in the pandemic, my, my next door neighbor is a, um, chief human resource officer. And she, um, I said to her, we were chatting one day, every organization needs to rethink its physical footprint and its physical necessities. And the smart 
ones will are doing that now and will make decisions that will both save the organization money, cut down on waste, and still serve its employees as those employees want. And she agreed 100%. She works for a, a pretty uh, advanced organization. And so, and, and every organization, I mean, I, I was walking around Whole Foods uh, a few months ago, and I thought this... The every Whole Foods had better be thinking of this, you know. Amazon Whole Foods had better be thinking of, of, of what should the new Whole Foods look like to avoid closing down self-serve food bars, and and changing its footprint and layout, so that if this happens again in ten years, God forbid, they're even they're they're better ready to pivot. But you're right. Uh, organizations have smart organizations have have kept moving forward. Not so smart organizations keep championing the words back to normal. And if you, and, and the, the, the word that bothers me in that is back. There, there, we shouldn't be moving back to normal. We should be moving forward to a better normal. And that better normal is subjective. And I think that, that that the idea of for all that we know about management and leadership, you still have these folks who who demand that um, that they see their people because they feel like that's how they can keep an eye on. I mean, Earl, that's like something out of the indust the, the the industrial revolution. <laughs> I mean, that's so old. I mean, and and you know what, Earl? It's not just corporations. It's in higher education. You know, when we had to all pivot online, I was ready for it. I've been teaching online for more than a decade. It was nothing for me. We didn't miss a beat. Our class went on perfectly. The students did great. I told them I was ready for them. We made the necessary adjustments. Bang. We had a great spring 2020 and it worked out. In the fall and spring of last year, we had to do some hybrid high flex models. I spent the summer working on it. Everything worked out. Was it a challenge? Yeah. Was it ideal? No. But you know what? I adapted. I adjusted. I made it happen. And and I had colleagues who had never taught online, never wanted to teach online, actually said in a meeting, I had colleagues in a meeting say, you cannot teach leadership transformationally online. Guess (laughs) what? I've got student evaluations that prove that I can. Maybe you can't. <laughs> right. I can. And, and that's the difference. I am my own organization and every professor is their own organization. And the professors who are agile and nimble are the ones who are going to be most successful. The ones who aren't, aren't. And, and even in my online classes, Earl, one of the things, you know, you and I are, are here audio, audio. My, when I tell people that my online classes, we never see each other almost. Mm. Most teachers, they have all the students. Everybody has to have their camera on. Everybody's staring into the camera like, am I paying attention enough? Am I right. fidgeting too much? I do none of that. I We almost never, in the first class, when I call their name, I ask them to turn their camera on and say hello. And that's it. And I, I keep my camera on. In the last class, I invite them to turn their camera on if they want. And most do, some don't. But the rest of the term... If it's an online course, 
We never show, we never go face to face, not me, not them. And do you know why? Because we don't need to. I don't want students worrying about how do I look? Am I paying attention enough? How's my lighting? What's their lighting? What's in their background? What's in my background? All of that is a distraction. Yeah. And I think organizations need to realize they're creating some of their own distractions for their employees. They really are. Even the idea of being in a meeting online in Zoom, do you really have to be on face-to-face? Can you, can you just be voice-to-voice if you want to? What if you don't feel great? What if you're just feeling, what if you didn't sleep well and you've got an 8 a.m. meeting and you just kind of want to roll out of bed, go to the meeting, and then take some time to wake up? Like, can't you just be unkempt and there? And, and when I say to students, it's just like having an engaged phone call. When I, when I say to people, they go, oh. And, and they say, well, how do you know your students are paying attention? You know what I say to them, Earl? I say, hey, listen, you could look at me in the face and have a conversation with me. I can nod and pretend I'm listening to you and be thinking about anything else. How do you know I'm paying attention? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, organizations, I, I think, like you said, the agile, nimble ones that are, are willing to make these shifts are, are going to be the ones that are going to get ahead. The ones that don't, they're in for a rough haul um, and they're going to end up overpaying because they're going to think that's the only way to get people. And, and people are probably going to start demanding higher wages. And if, if they're not going to get what they want in terms of flexibility, they're going to get what they want somewhere else. So flexibility is a little less expensive, in my opinion. Well, yeah, exactly. No, I agree. And I think that's the thing. I think some organizations are about to uh, demand themselves right out of business because, you know, with these technologies that we're talking about here right now, I mean, you know, think about it. The, the kid that graduates your class tomorrow can have legitimately an international business inside of a week. That's right. You know, and, and that is, is something that 15, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you had to be typically a, a multi-million dollar corporation to be able to consider yourself international and have legitimate footholds. But no, I mean, this is, this is an age where you have to think virtually. Absolutely. Earl, I have, I, you know, I, I shouldn't be surprised because my students at St. Joe's are, are really sharp. I love them. You have no idea how many students I know have their own side businesses. I, yep. I know students who have their own drop ship businesses. I have, I have two or three students that um, were sell, they're, they're trading sneakers online. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, I just bought this Venus Williams special edition, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I bought it for $70 and I sold it for $180 around the globe. And it, really? Yeah, they're like, yeah, and blah, blah, blah. And this, you ready for this? I, I had a student who graduated. Somehow we ended up catching up. He had recently graduated. I had him as a freshman and we happened to keep in touch throughout his college career. Great young man named Alex. Alex gets a job working for one of the big consulting firms. He knows that's not what he wants to do for his life, but he gets the job to start out because he knows he's going to learn a lot and he's really sharp. Somehow we get on to talking and he says, yeah, I sell stuff on eBay on, you know, on the side. I've been or, or on, online, a variety of platforms. But eBay is the number one. And uh, yeah, and I said, no kidding. And I said to him, you know, Alex, I got stuff to sell. Would you sell my stuff? And he goes, oh, yeah, I've sold sold it for my parents and other people. I I can take you on as a client. And I went, no kidding. Next thing you know, bring him in. I, I, I spend a week with my wife running around our house, getting rid of all the junk we don't want anymore. I put it in the basement in boxes. 
And this is the arrangement we made. I said, Alex, anything that you don't want to sell, you just say no. And that's it. And I said, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not going to, there might be some things that I want to make a certain amount of money on. But other than that, you can do the research. You can price it. You can, you know, all this stuff. And he went, great. And, um, and it's been going on a few years now. So, so what's funny is he picks, he, he grabs this collection of items he's going to sell. Mm-hmm. And he pulls his car around and he pulls up in a BMW. And I go, man, Alex, that's a, that's a really impressive car. And he goes, yeah, I bought it used with the money I made selling stuff online. I said, well, I guess I'm with the right guy. Yeah. And he, he has since started selling stuff for my mother. He has since started selling stuff for another friend of ours, another couple. So I'm passing him on to people. He's making more money with them. Yeah. And now he's also dabbling in real estate. And I'll tell you this, what I said to him point blank. I said, Alex, you, uh, you get to a point where you, you need, need some investment and you put together the proposal. And if I can do it, I'm going to invest in it. And I'm going to invest in you. I'm not investing in this. I'm investing in you because yeah. I believe in you. And he's like, yeah, thanks. I'll do that. And, you know, I'm working on a, on a few things now. You know, once I feel like I have it down, I'll let you know. And, and yeah, I mean, the students today, the opportunities are there far more for them than there were for us, uh, which is great. And they're taking advantage of it. And so, you know, these, these students, these companies that are trying to lure these students, boy, they're having a tougher time now. And like you said, they're going to have to get creative with how they even recruit. And I'll tell you, Earl, did you say, are you, are you a Marine Corps veteran? Yes, sir. Okay. That's what I thought. And, um, I have said over and over that if I had a business, the number one place that I would be doing my recruiting is veterans administrations because mm-hmm. that's, that is number one. Number two are settled legal refugees and number three are ex-cons. People getting out of prison. Now, obviously, it depends on yeah. what they were in for and what I'm having them do. But the reason why those are the three groups that I would I would actively target, and you made a great point about people from disadvantaged neighborhoods and and finding them as well, and it takes more work, but you can do that, is because these people just want a chance. Yeah. And you give these folks a chance. Now, giving them a chance doesn't mean just giving them a job. You got to train. You gotta supervise. You gotta support. You can't just give them the job and then let them go. That's not enough. You've got to train and organizations are finally figuring out you've got to train. You've got to support. You've got to, and, and you supervise not in a heavy handed way, but in a facilitating way, in a supportive relationship way. If you can do that, these people will blossom before your very eyes. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I like what you said there, that, that coaching, mentoring yep. support system, because, you know, yeah, th- those folks have a drive and a passion and, and ambition by the truckload. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I could go on that one for, for a long time, but, you know, especially with the, with the vets, you know, I mean, that, yep. that's one that's really passionate for me because, you know, a lot of these folks, they get out and, and most organizations look at them like, well, you know how to do is pull a trigger and, and drop some bombs. And there's so much more skill set uh, behind there that, that organizations are missing out and and not taking advantage of that 
in, uh, you know, is one of the key factors in this veteran suicide epidemic. Because all those folks want is a purpose. You give yeah. them a purpose and they will do anything and everything for that purpose. I have a lot of, of friends who are military veterans and um, I'm happy that they're all thriving. Um, but it not so many don't. And my father's a, an army veteran. He was in Vietnam and uh, you know, he's a, he's a retired dentist and uh, has done well. And, uh, but, but I do think that our government has, has let, let our service members down in so many ways. And it, it hurts me because when I see this, I, I you know, I, there's, there's, I, I'm not hiring anybody, so there's little I can do. But I'll tell you this, one of the things I'm very proud of, Earl, is St. Joe's, we have a veterans uh, administration program where we do specific uh, education and connecting and career support for veterans. Yep. And uh, it's a growing program for us. So I'm really proud of that. And yeah, that's, that's why I constantly champion uh, bringing in because they, they're, if anyone who can be that dedicated to something outside of themselves, to be a member of the military, they can be dedicated to your organization. Imagine what they can bring. Yeah. Well, and, and let's talk about, you know, again, those those underserved populations again. I mean, there, there's a lot of similarities there. I, I like the way Dr. Bernane Brown puts it when she says, you know, people give a damn that you give a damn. Well, you know, when we look at things like uh, gangs in these areas or whatever, that's exactly what's happened. We, we've let these negative influence groups tell these kids that they give a damn and nobody else does. When you're the organization that goes in there and says, no, no, I give a damn too. And my path leads to success. That path leads to jail. They're going to take the path that leads to success as long as you genuinely do care about them. And I think a lot of organizations miss that point. Big time. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's great to you brought that. I love Brene Brown. Who doesn't, right? She's right. great. Uh, and I'm reminded, the gentleman's name escapes me. He's a priest who has worked, and I think it's in California, but he's worked with disadvantaged youths, helping them, you know, build their skills. I think it's in restaurant, working in a restaurant. And I think his quote is, a hopeful kid doesn't need a gun. Yeah. And it, I saw that and I thought, yeah, that's right. Like I was always a pretty hopeful kid. I didn't need a gun growing up. And and people who have lost that hope, they turn to to the opportunity they think is available. And there's a great TED talk uh, on by Mike Brady and Dion Drew. Uh, it's about why they hire people who are considered unemployable. Mm-hmm. And... And it's a it's about a brownie factory in Yonkers, New York, that that basically has no hiring criteria. It's like, do you, you know, are you able to work? Do you want to work? We'll give you a chance. And this gentleman, Dion Drew, he, he tells his story, and he says, "I saw my mother working and not getting anywhere, and I saw the people on the street winning, and so I turned to that, and I saw friends die, and I." Um, I did some time in jail and I got out and I didn't know what to do. And I got a call. I, I decided to put in this, you know, put my name in. You basically put your name in. You don't even like fill out, I think, a formal application maybe at most. And they called me one day and said, do you want to work? And I said, sure. 
and he went in and it has changed his life. He goes, now I spend all the time championing this cause and, and why you should give people a chance. And he, and, and he's saying, I've got health insurance. I've got dental insurance. I've got Aflac. And people are kind of laughing. He's like, I've got bank accounts. You know, I mean, things that I don't think about. And I mean, I haven't thought about a bank account early in, in 35 years. Yeah. And, and this is important to people. And you're right. If, if you show that you care and you put in the work, you can pull folks over from these potentially hopeless situations into a situation of hope. And it's hard because my wife dealt with this. She, she, she dealt with people. How do you say to a woman who lives in a neighborhood, how do you say to her, you know, getting out and doing some exercise would do you good when if she goes out on her block, she might get shot? How right. do you say, like, you can't say she's wrong for staying in her house. Yep. Um, and so, so you're right. It's, it's finding, it's, it's putting together, it's the government and it's corporations and organizations, whether it's non for nonprofit or, or for-profit organizations putting together programs to help people find opportunities to, to that help serve them so that they can get away from the hopeless, the hopelessness. It's yeah. excellent. No, hundred percent. And, and yeah, I mean, and those are things like, I remember early in the pandemic, uh, people were talking about, you know, African-Americans not wanting to wear their masks. And when people actually started listening, what they heard was, or if they started listening, what they heard was, look, it's dangerous enough for me to walk into a grocery store on a routine basis without somebody thinking I'm trying to rob the place. You think I'm going to put a mask on? <laughs> you know, and we it's those factors that we don't think about. And, and, and that's that. That that's it. So I do a lot of work in leadership and diversity and inclusion. I like to marry those things together because I, I I see them as one cohesive unit, if you will. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is um, there. There is no leadership without inclusion. Yeah. There, there, there isn't. I mean, uh, you know, you you have to be inclusive if you're going to be uh, a leader. People need to see you in that in that vein. Uh, if you're, you know, if, if you're going to be, a, if you're going to be seen as a leader, yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. I love it. I love it. Well, Michael, we've been talking here for almost fifty minutes here, and this has just been a fantastic conversation. I really want to uh, say thank you for having it with me and and uh, with my listeners. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I hope they get some value out of it. And I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to offer some more if they want to reach out to me. Yeah. Well, I, on that note, I think uh, we may have to have you back on here in, in the future because I think you and I could probably talk for another two or three hours here uh, because this has been some really good stuff. But, um, you know, just out of curiosity, uh, what are you, you know, what are you working on now? You're talking about getting ready for a new class. Uh, you know, what, what's the exciting new thing for the new class coming up? Well, I have, well, so I have two undergrad management courses. One's a freshman group and one is an upper level group. I'm ex- I'm always excited to have them because I'm going to be in the classroom with them. We are going to be masked, uh, at least to start off with. You know, a lot of schools are starting off in masks and, and we're going to see, we, we've been planning that for a while, but I'm excited to have that because we're going to all be together. Uh, we're going to be a little distance, but we're going to be very smart about it. And, uh, St. Joe's is, for lack of a better term, requiring vaccinations of everybody. So I think we're hopeful we'll be in a bubble. So that's, 
that's a positive thing. Uh, I got two graduate online classes, one in the first half. It's my leadership in modern organizations course. Uh, taught that over the summer for the first time. It's a great course. I love it. Uh, the students get excited. And, uh, so uh, I'm always happy about that. And then, um, this new career class in the second half, uh, that's where most of my time is going. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, Every time I put together a new course, it's, it's new, it's exciting for me. It really is. And so I'm, I'm doing that. But I've also got a couple of projects coming up. Uh, I'm doing some, I'm doing two different, uh, programs with a pharmaceutical company. Uh, one is on difficult conversations, uh, and, and how to handle those, whether it's telling a direct report they're struggling, uh, with their performance or whether it's talking to a supervisor about some things you're not happy with. Uh, and then the other one is influencing without authority. So how to, how to go about influencing up, influencing peers, um, and, and how to, how to gain influence without having formal authority. Always a challenge. So I'm going to be doing that. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm also building my own coaching practice. Uh, so always expanding that. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So that's it. There, there's a lot, a lot of excitement going on. It's certainly not going to be, uh, uh, no moss will grow on me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, before we work to close out here, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to uh, get into in this conversation that you would really like to leave listeners with? <laughs> Thanks for asking. I think the I think the number one thing that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with the number one thing that I like to tell my students with regard to self leadership, and it's this: it's you know, you made the comment, Earl, about people working in jobs that they don't love, that they don't like at all. A lot of times people get directed into those from their parents. Uh, they'll be told, hey, go into this profession because it's stable. It's safe. Right. And it might be. Uh, that doesn't mean it's right for you. And, you know, my dad, again, he's a retired dentist. He was very successful, had his own practice. I cannot tell you, Earl, how many people over my lifetime, I'm 51, said to me, I can't believe you didn't want to be a dentist. I can't believe you didn't want to take over your dad's practice because they see things like the house, the cars, the, 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 the idea of money. And they think, why would you not want to take that over? You could go to dental school and be guaranteed that. And the answer is, I never wanted to be a dentist for a day in my life. I yep. still don't. And I never regretted that decision. And so the, the lesson I want to throw out there is this. Live the life that is right for you, not the one someone else thinks you should live. Too many times I have students sit in my office that say, I want to do X and my parents want me to do Y. I want to do A, my parents want me to do B, and I don't know what to do. And certainly I'm not going to tell them what to do. They've got to figure that out on their own. But I strongly encourage everyone to live the life that is right for each of us. That means professionally and that means personally. Living the life that is right for you. Um, I have a friend, one of my, one of my oldest friends in the world, Earl is gay. He came out decades ago and, and I'm happy he did that because at that moment he was able to live an authentic life for himself, yeah. not for anybody else, for himself. And he said, he's lived a great life. I just saw him last month. He, you know, he's, he's such a great guy. If everybody was like him, the world would be a great place. And, and so that's why I constantly challenge people to live that life that is right for you, not the one someone else thinks you should live, whether it's your professional career or your personal life. 
that the life has to be authentic for you. It can't be, it doesn't mean you can't listen to people. It doesn't mean you can't take suggestions, but to, to allow yourself to be pushed in, in a direction uh, because someone tells you it's safe, if it doesn't make you happy, I, I just, I don't see where that's a positive thing. No, I, a hundred percent. I love everything you just said there. And I think that's a, a great way to, to close it out. I love that advice. Uh, so hopefully, and I think that I can safely say that we have, we've got some people interested in you and what you do and your story and wanting to find out more. Uh, how can they do that, Michael? How can they reach out uh, to you and maybe, uh, join, uh, your or partake of your services as a coach, I should say. Well, let me ask this, Earl. Is there a way for them to see my name uh, in print? Will they oh, absolutely. I'll have all okay. this stuff in the show notes. Okay. So in the show notes, they can see my name. My website is michaelalaruzzo.com. Uh, they can certainly reach out to me there. Uh, they can also find me on LinkedIn, Michael Alaruzzo. I know it's easier to say than it is to spell so I won't try to do it here, but they can take a look in the show notes and find me in either place. They can reach out. I, I welcome it. Uh, people have reached out from some of the other stuff I've done. Um, and frankly, I have the thing that gives me the greatest joy is my former students reaching out to me, asking me for advice, thanking me for advice. Uh, so uh, hopefully your listeners will find some value as well. And I'd love to have them. I'd love to see if I can offer some direct value to whatever they're experiencing. And I, I thank you again, Earl, for this opportunity. It's been my pleasure. Oh, it's yeah. look, I appreciate it. And like I said, we're going to have to work on uh, getting you back on here sometime here in the near future because this has been a great conversation. Listeners, all this stuff is going to be in the show notes. We're going to get you hooked up. I definitely uh, want you to go check out uh, Michael's website. And uh, as he mentioned, yeah, his name is a little on the tricky side to spell, but that's okay. We'll, we'll make it nice and easy for you. So, you know, again, Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, making a difference that you're you're making. It, it, it means a lot to society. Thanks, Earl. You too. You keep doing what you're doing. I think you're doing a great job and, and I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. And listeners, thank you for being with us. Uh, I, I hope you appreciate Michael as much as I do. Uh, Keep doing what you do. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, share the show with everybody that you know so my guests like Michael can get their ideas spread further and reach more people and make a bigger impact like they want to do. And with that, thank you one last time for your time that you spent with us. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys.
Electricast. Electricast.